if we can instead harness um, our innate sociability through activities like um, storytelling and arguing and debating with each other and um, teaching other people, then we bring in this whole suite of other cognitive abilities that remain dormant when we're just alone thinking, you know, sitting at our desk, maybe with our earbuds in and, and not interacting with other people. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week our guest is science writer Annie Murphy-Paul, who just recently released her latest book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. In The Extended Mind, Annie takes us on a tour of the different types of intelligence we're able to tap into, focusing primarily on three often overlooked forms, thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings, and thinking with our relationships. In this episode, we explore those ideas in much greater detail, and we also dig into how these forms of thinking relate to our use of technology and to our work lives, including how to be a better manager and a better leader. Now, if you're interested in having more conversations like this that you've been hearing on this podcast, consider joining our free community where these kind of conversations are taking place regularly. For instance, you can join myself and dozens of other members of the community at one of our virtual events that we host every other Tuesday. If you do decide to join, please come find me in the room and let's have a chat about some of the things you're interested in. But until then, let's jump into this episode, everyone. Please welcome to the feedback loop, Annie Murphy Paul. Well, then let's just use that as our jumping off point. Um, to start, then, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what actually motivated you to write your latest book, which, for those who may not know, is The Extended Mind The Power of Thinking Outside of the Brain. Yeah, so I'm a science writer, and I my beat is um, writing about research uh, on learning and cognition. Um, that's become what I write about. In any case, um, I would say that more narrowly, I have been writing. I had been writing a lot about the science of learning, and I kept finding finding lots of um, really interesting threads of research that seemed to connect, seemed in some way to me to connect to each other, but I couldn't really f- figure out how they connected. And I'm talking about research in embodied cognition, which is the idea that um, we think with, with, our, with the movements and gestures of our bodies and the sensations of our bodies and situated cognition, the idea that um, where we are affects the way we think. And then socially distributed cognition, which means, you know, that we, we don't think with our own brains alone, but we, we join our minds with other people's, um, in a kind of collective intelligence. And, and then, um, I ran across an article that was written by two philosophers and, and published in 1998. Uh, the philosophers were Andy Clark and David Chalmers. They wrote a, an article called the extended mind. And the very first sentence of the, of the article said something like, where does the world, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And this to me was, you know, a fascinating question, a provocative question, because 
our usual answer to that question would be, well, it stops at the skull. It stops at, um, you know, at, at, at the boundary of your of your own head. Um, but Clark and Chalmers were advancing this theory, this notion that actually no thinking, our thinking processes are spread across, you know, the body, um, physical spaces, other the minds of other people, and also what they were most interested in are tools, uh, our devices, our uh, technologies and how we use those as kind of an extension of our of our minds. And so when I read this article, I realized that this was the big idea that was pulling together all these different strands of research that I had been interested in. And this was what I was looking for in the sense of a new way of thinking about thinking, a new way of conceptualizing what it is we do when we try to, when we attempt difficult cognitive tasks that um, all that activity is not happening here. It's actually happening, you know, um, in a, in a much wider frame. Um, so that became the subject of, uh, of my book. And you touched on it there, but the book also breaks down into those three parts, which are thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings and thinking with our relationships. Mm -hmm. um, could you kind of just take us on a little bit of, of a tour of what each of those really looks like, perhaps starting with um, thinking with our bodies? Yeah. So, you know, in Western culture, we have this very old uh, bias um, that that mind and body are separate and that body is the body is sort of animal and grubby and, you know, um, um, irrational and unruly. And that the brain, the mind is something more celestial and, you know, um, elevated. And in fact, what scientists are, have been discovering and demonstrating more and more is, is how very interconnected the brain and the rest of the body are and how influenced the brain is by the body and not just in the other direction. We think of the brain sort of telling the body what to do, but in fact, the brain is receiving this constant flow of information from within the body. And that's actually the topic of the first chapter within that section, thinking about the brain. I write about um, a phenomenon known as interoception, which is um, the capacity to sense those internal sensations as opposed to the way we collect all this information from the outside world through our senses. We also have this flow of information that's constantly being generated within our bodies. And it's my argument, it's my contention in that chapter that <clears throat> we, um, that, that, that flow of internal sensation, which many of us kind of you know, suppress or ignore, um, actually has a lot of information to share with us. It actually is a way of cueing us into a wealth of non-conscious knowledge that we have stored, uh, but is not accept, uh, accessible to us, except through these kind of little pokes and prods um, that arise from our bodies. So the more interoceptively attuned we are, the more we can take advantage of the stuff that we, we know, but we don't know we know it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> and then the other two chapters in that section are about thinking with gesture, um, you know, the way that uh, the movements of our hands are actually part of the, our thinking processes. Um, and also moving with, <clears throat> sorry, thinking with like whole body movements, like the way that um, say taking a walk helps to prime our brains to think in a more dynamic and creative way. The idea is that by moving and moving our bodies in certain ways, we can 
induce our brains to think in certain ways, which again is kind of turning that causal arrow around. You know, we think of the brain as telling the body what to do, but in many ways we can uh, influence this, the state or the um, operation of the brain by, by moving the body. Do you think that Italians think better because they gesture a lot? <laughs> you know, I can't be the first person who, who yeah, has I was asked that. Say, you know what? I actually get that question quite a lot. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, there is research. What I can say is that there is research uh, suggesting that when you suppress the, um, the urge to, well, when you suppress the urge to move, but also when you, when you um, suppress or, um, require others not to gesture, then then people's thinking suffers. So it does stand to reason that the more you gesture, um, the the more the more fluent your your um, your speech is, and the more fluent your your thinking is. So I think yes, the Italians may have an edge over the rest of us. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've done mm-hmm. any if your research led you to this, but um, this is a topic that's fascinating to me as well. And if I remember correctly, one of the things that I've come to find is that gesturing actually seems to have led to the expansion in the part of the brain that deals with language and that a lot of it was like mirror neurons and our attempt to uh, repeat gestures started to promote language mm. Um, mm. And I think it's in Braca's area I don't know I just wondered mm. if that's something mm. that you've came across because it seems like a really close tie yeah well language verbal language and gestures are really closely interconnected but um but if anything gesture came first you know linguists think that gestures were our our first means of communication and that verbal language came later and even to this day um you know babies when they're learning language they start gesturing and conveying meaning through gesture before they're able to say words so we kind of recapitulate that that um that human history, but also um, it's the case that gesture is, is you know, we, we might think of it as this kind of clumsy accompaniment to speech, but it's actually often a few steps ahead of what we're, what we're saying in words and our newest and most advanced and most um, cutting edge ideas often show up first in, in our, in the movements of our hands. That's before we can actually, we're able to put something, put words to an idea, and then we can actually Sort of bootstrap our thinking. We can we can read off of our hands the motions of our hands, um, some element <clears throat> that informs our verbal account of what we're trying to um, to explain or understand. So really, gestures, far from being a kind of um, lagging indicator, they're actually at the cutting edge of our of our thought processes. And do you think that has any tie in with the way writing tends to help people remember things like for me personally mm, i love mm. using pen and paper versus typing something because typing feels very standardized like every button click is just a button click and then yes. it creates a thing that looks the same but when i write it it's got a very unique set of curves and movements that i perform and i yes. really think that empowers my thought yes yes now there's there's evidence there too to suggest that forming letters as you say when you form letters with with your with a pen and your hand um each letter is different whereas you know tapping each key on a keyboard is it feels the same and it doesn't have the same memory inducing effect or or memory consolidating effect as as writing something um uh uh, writing something by hand but I, i think there's an even bigger difference between 
putting words down on paper, whether it's with a computer or, um, or with, or with a pen um, and keeping it in our heads, you know, that mm -hmm. that's, we, we off, I, um, it's my view. And I think it's supported by the evidence that we try to do too much in our heads and keep too much in our minds rather than offloading uh, our thoughts and ideas and thereby getting some perspective and some distance on them. Um, and there's um, evidence to suggest that, that we get um, what's, what a psychologist calls the, a detachment benefit from taking those ideas out of our head, putting some space between us and them, and we get then we see them differently. And I think writers or, or anyone who, is, who's, um, <clears throat> who has you know, struggled to, to articulate an idea finds that they deal with those ideas differently when they're down on paper than when they're still in our heads. Yeah, absolutely. I always... I always say that one of the things I love about writing is that when it is on the paper, I can judge it objectively. But when mm -hmm. it's in my mind, I'm stuck mm -hmm. in the subjective lens mm -hmm. exactly. and I'm biased and it doesn't help me work through anything. Right, right, right. You talk about interoception there. And um, one of the things you talked about is the some of us are more tuned to it versus others. Um, and I'm wondering what are some of the ways maybe that we can increase that attunement that we can maybe become more aware of what's going on in our body. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the um, methods for increasing interoceptive attunement that's received the most research support is um, it's a component of mindfulness meditation that's known as the body scan. And that is a practice wherein you bring open, non-judgmental, curious um, attention to those sensations that are rise, arising in your body. And, and one way to do it is to focus sort of on one part of the body at a time. Um, and the idea is just to, again, not to judge it, not to um, feel like you need to do any do anything about it, just to be aware of these sensations that are there all the time, whether it's you can feel your heart beating or you can feel <clears throat> a tightness in your chest or your stomach, you know, just to, to feel what's going on and to tap into that flow of sensation that is again with us all the time, but that we so often when we're not meditating, when we're not um, consciously attending to it, we, we tend to just um, overlook. And in your research, have you come across any work that suggests that doing this increases your thinking capacities? Like have they had people do tests before and after a body scan for, for instance, and said, okay, this person actually was, more creative, more productive, uh, was able to more quickly solve this problem. Has there, was there any work like that done that you've seen? Yeah, it seems to increase, um, being more interoceptively attuned seems to increase our resilience, including our cognitive resilience, meaning our ability to persist with a difficult, um, cognitive or mental task and to, um, you know, re rebound from adversity or challenge because, um, you know, those internal signals there, that's a moment by moment kind of, um, gauge of, of our energy levels and how much, um, capacity we have to take on a difficult task. So when people are, when they're out of tune with that, when they're not aware of, of where their body is in, in a sense, then they can easily get overwhelmed or they they're surprised by the fact that they suddenly feel, um, irritable or tired or, you know, not, not capable of, um, of, of undertaking a challenge. Whereas if you're in, in tune and in touch with those internal signals, you can kind of manage your, your energy reserves better. You can prepare yourself for a challenge. 
you can kind of maintain yourself through that challenge and then you can recover once the challenge is over in a much more um, effective way than if you were sort of cut off from your body and all the information that your body has to share. And do you think there's ever a chance that that could be uh, deceptive or misleading? Because when you were saying that, that brings to mind um, truth detectors or, you know, lie mm -hmm, detectors. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there's some evidence that says, yeah, 85% to 95% of the time, these are accurate. The APA, I believe, on the other hand, has said that replication study after replication study says that they're not really accurate because people's sweaty palms or heart rate or whatnot can be a result of just being afraid of having the conversation mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. of answering with a mm -hmm. lie. So like, I, I don't know if if that's something that you looked into, but to yeah. me, there, it yeah. feels like maybe, you know, like I'm, my palms are sweaty because I'm scared to give this speech. And because uh -huh. I know that I don't have to be as scared or maybe, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know? Yes. Yes. No, I, two thoughts about that. One is that being attuned to those um, those ground level bodily signals can actually help you um, intervene in that process of constructing an emotion because as you as you note um, you know an, an an emotion like nervousness has exactly the same physical correlates physiological correlates as a state like excitement and when we tune in not to not to the idea that I'm so nervous I'm so nervous but rather what am I actually feeling? Okay, my, my heart is beating faster. I have some butterflies in my stomach. My, my palms are sweaty. Well, maybe, you know, maybe that's my body getting me ready for a challenge. That's, that's it's, it's prepping me for this, you know, this, this um, difficult thing that I'm about to attempt. And I'm actually feeling, I'm feeling ready. I'm feeling pretty excited for this, you know, so you can kind of get in on the ground floor in terms of constructing that emotion from the, the, um, the fundamental or basic parts of, of, um, the raw materials of, of the bodily response. But then an, another thought that I came to mind when we were, you mentioned, um, can those be misleading those internal signals? That's actually what happens or part of what happens when people suffer a panic attack is that often mm -hmm. they they are tuning in a little too much to their bodies and they, they, they say, say they feel that um, they're not getting enough oxygen and their breathing is becoming you know, really shallow and rapid that can actually feed on itself and, um, and lead, to, lead to a full-blown panic attack. So interestingly, the, the recommended treatment for that is called interoceptive exposure, where you kind of get a little taste of that interoceptive feeling. You know, you might, um, a clinician might have you blow into a paper bag or through a straw or something, but you do it in, you do it in a very safe and controlled setting. And you learn, you, your body and your mind learns over time that, no, actually I, I'm fine. And, uh, you know, my breathing may be a little bit quick and, and shallow, but, but I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, this is not, I'm my, I'm not under threat. And so yeah. we can learn as long as we're attuned to our uh, internal signals, we can learn to work with them. And that's like a, just a form of exposure therapy really at that mm -hmm. point. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And now what about thinking with your environment? This is one that I really enjoy as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we think with our environment. Sure. Yeah. And this is where I really get into a main theme of the book, which is that the, the brain is not a computer. The brain is, you know, the, the, there's a very common metaphor that undergirds a lot of the way that we talk about the brain, which is that the brain is like a computer. And this is one way in which a computer is quite different from a brain 
our brains are really sensitive to they're really they're really um responsive to the environment and the context in which we do our thinking which is not the case for for a computer my my laptop here will operate just the same here in my living room um as it would if i took it to the park you know so but people and um their mental processes work very differently depending on where we are and one of the clearest examples of that is that we the way we respond to being in nature and you know a lot of us know already that when we go into nature when we spend time in nature we feel more relaxed more um laid back and sort of more um more at ease, um, but there's a, a reason for that, which is that you know human beings evolved in in an outdoor setting. This life we live now, where we're inside a house or a car, like upwards of ninety percent of the time, that's a very modern, recent development. Um, but we really we evolved to live outdoors, and and our brains evolved to process the stimuli that are found in nature in a very effortless and easy and um, uh, and in a way that is actually very pleasing and pleasant. And that's part of why we find we often find that our mood is elevated when we're outside. And the way that our attention is engaged by nature, you know, say by rolling waves or by um, leaves that are rustling in the wind, it's it's a very diffuse and kind of um, um, so, uh, the, the word, the phrase that uh, psychologists use to describe it is soft fascination. It's very different from the, the hard-edged kind of attention that we have to pay to our work or our studies if we're a student. And so spending time in nature is a way to sort of refill the, the tank of our attentional resources because um, our attention, although it's being sort of pleasantly diverted when we're outdoors, it does, it's not being drained and drawn down the way it is when we have to focus um, on our work. So we can go outside, spend some time outside, and then come back to our work with our attentional capacities refreshed. I suspect then if you're talking about fast, soft fascination that you looked at the attention restoration theory from Kaplan mm -hmm. and Kaplan. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, so can you talk, I, I, that is one of my favorite bodies of work. Um, so I really love that. Can you talk a little bit about more about that directed versus like a more passive form of attention and, and maybe how you think that's affecting us in this very like digital, concrete, fast moving world that we live in versus maybe the natural environment? Yeah, well, um, you know, you mentioned fast moving or, or fast moving modern world, and that's that's another contrast that um, that is brought up by the attention by attention restoration theory is not just um, the contrast between nature and the way it engages our attention and the way our work, um, you know, of, of sort of focusing on abstract symbols, how that um, engages our attention very, you know, very differently but also nature as opposed to more urban or built settings or being indoors. There's, you know, there's a lot of straight angles um, in our, in a built setting. There's a lot of loud noises, fast moving cars and people. And that's a very different um, setting from nature where things are, tend to be um, again, the, the stimuli tends to be more diffuse, more sort of more soft edged. Um, and also, you know, there's, there's not, a, there's 
a lot of variety in terms of um, color and hue, but within a restricted range. So like lots of green and more green, but um, so all these things are sort of easy on the mind in the way in a way that urban or built settings are not. So what are your thoughts on how that maybe affects our intelligence and our well-being maybe from a socioeconomic or like kind of uh, equality point of view? Because if we're talking there about an urban environment causing more amygdala activation and you're more vigilant um, and you're less able to kind of like access the carefree part of your brain that maybe thinks more critically, um, what does that mean for people who live with parks and yards mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. have all this open space versus people who are living next to a busy highway and a train uh, and have cars honking and bars right mm -hmm. outside their mm -hmm. window. Like, mm -hmm. obviously they're going to think differently. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the themes that I tried to bring out in the extended mind is the, is the fact that once we accept that uh, these things outside our brain have have such a big impact on how well we think, then we have to really look at the fact that and take stock of the fact that these mental extensions are in no way equitably distributed. And that includes access to nature and green spaces. Um, the New York Times had an amazing piece um, a couple of months ago that looked at how much more green um, almost on a block by block basis, um, affluent neighborhoods were as opposed to, to, um, to poor neighborhoods, less affluent neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I think we know in a sense that uh, even, even as we are a very brain bound society, we do tend to locate intelligence in the brain. But I think at the same time, our behavior shows that we understand that um, these mental extensions like, like access to nature and green space really do make a difference because we, the price of those things is bid up. You know, you pay more for an apartment um, overlooking Central Park than you do one that overlooks a, a, brick, a brick wall, you know? So, um, and of course, people who have the resources and who have the privilege take advantage of those things and are able to kind of engage in a rich, the rich get richer um, cycle, wherein um, money buys you mental extensions and it buys you the ability to think better. And mm -hmm. I think that's a big contributor to inequality in our society that we haven't really looked at very much. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think about the kind of, I guess, reconciliation between thinking with the benefit of a device or an external neural system of some some kind you know whether it's a notebook or like a smartphone that you take notes with and the effect of having digital mm. objects in the environment mm. and maybe the almost pavlovian or mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. dopamine <laughs> dripping mm -hmm. uh, effect that they have mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well a couple of thoughts there one is that you know human beings have been thinking outside the brain, extending their minds for time immemorial. So this is not, a, it's not a new thing. And I don't think it's something we should be afraid of in the sense of, oh my God, if we delegate all our mental faculties to, to our devices, what, what will be left? Actually, I think um, for a lot of routine and mundane tasks, it's, it's great to be able to offload those to a device that we can count on that is reliable and then free up that mental bandwidth for the kinds of thinking that only humans can engage in, you know, higher level cognition, like um, planning and imagining and creating. Um, at the same time, we have to use our 
digital devices skillfully, like any mental extension, the, the, the trick is in how you use them. And there are certainly ways that we end up using our devices so that they don't expand our, they don't extend our minds at all. They're actually sort of contracting our, um, our minds. And uh, just one example of that is, is this uh, common idea that kids don't need to learn facts anymore because they can just Google it. And you know what they need to do is, is learn how to think. But it turns out that in order to engage in the very kind of think, kinds of thinking that teachers and parents and other adults want kids to learn how to do, they actually need a base of, of factual information stored in their head. So um, we can't, our use of mental extensions has to be skillful and it has to be informed and not, and, um, and not just casual or, or haphazard if we want to actually use it to think better. Sure. And thinking of uh, the ways our devices maybe limit our thinking, <laughs> let's maybe use that as a good point to say from social media to thinking socially, can mm. we talk a little bit about how we think? <laughs> that's a, that's a nice you. segue, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, that third section of the book is about thinking with other people. And I think, um, you know, I've one, another theme that has emerged that emerged in the book is in writing the book is that um, we may have reached the capacity of the biological brain to, to deal with the, we've created a world that is so complex that our, the biological brain unaided by other outside resources is, is almost not able to keep up. And so, and I think one place where we can see that is that information is so abundant, expertise is so specialized, and the frankly, the problems and challenges we face as a society are so complicated and, and wicked that we act, there's no, it's no longer the case that like an individual can, can, can tackle those challenges. We actually need to learn how to think together more effectively um, because we, we need the collective intelligence that arises from a group of people thinking almost as one, you know, engaging in a kind of group mind. But that's not really something we learn um, in our schools or in our workplaces because we have such an a, a, an individualistic focus of, you know, um, an, an individual achievement, individual accomplishment. And actually, we need to be um, developing ways to really successfully think together. Yeah. And how do we? How do we navigate? I mean, this is, I'm asking you a question here that's probably like, if you can solve this, you deserve a Nobel Prize. <laughs> but how do we navigate that lust for social validation and social knowledge that we kind of have evolutionarily hardwired into us mm. that makes us drawn towards this medium that hosts the thoughts of billions? Mm -hmm. When in reality, those billions of thoughts are probably exposing us to forms of suffering and controversy and outrage and just unnecessary information that doesn't actually benefits us and yet we kind of obsess you know for it we we want it but it's not really yeah. helping us to think it's no. clouding our thoughts yeah yeah well i think you know the designers of of social media platforms and other um phenomena of the digital era have very successfully hacked you know our, our sort of primitive um nervous systems and 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 biological brains and i don't see any reason why we couldn't sort of hack those those biological realities for good you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's 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 we're we're all starting with the same basic equipment and we all have these universal capacities and universal limitations um you know it's un, it's 
deeply unfortunate that they've they've been hacked in order to to make money basically um and we've seen some pretty pretty awful consequences of that but i i have hope that um having seen that that there'll be a, a movement to to um tap into those those very human characteristics and tendencies but in a positive direction i think that's a possibility yeah well let's hope so yeah mm -hmm. i'm with you so let's let's move this a little bit out of the realm of theory, I suppose, and a little bit more into the realm of, of practical application. Let's say, for instance, you know, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or people working in the the realm of business. Are there things that maybe as like a manager or a leader or as somebody who's like trying to be a better member of an organization, are there things that we can do to kind of utilize some of the techniques in your book uh, to think better? For sure, yeah. I think um, you know managers and leaders can really think of themselves uh, as sort of situation creators. You know, how can I create a context in which my my coworkers and my employees are going to be thinking intelligently? And some of those ways might be um, allowing people free movement of their bodies and not requiring people to work at their desks. Um, allowing people to be out to go outside and spend time outside to refresh their attention. Um, and then, you know, probably most relevantly, creating social contexts um, where people can harness the power of the social brain. You know, I think we often think of, of work of work life or intellectual life and social life as separate and distinct and even opposed to each other. It's like, we go to work, we do our work, and then we go out for a happy hour afterwards. But in fact, humans are social all the time. We're fundamentally social beings. And it doesn't make sense to try to turn that off when we're at the office. So if, if we can instead harness um, our innate sociability through activities like um, storytelling and arguing and debating with each other and um, teaching other people, then we bring in this whole suite of other um, of cognitive abilities that remain dormant when we're just alone thinking, you know, sitting at our desk, maybe with our earbuds in and, and not interacting with other people. So um, the more we can bring sociability and social life into the workplace in a productive way, I think the more intelligently people will be thinking. I feel like that's beautiful but so antithetical to so many <laughs> of the current paradigms there's there's because there's, there's a real fear right and maybe this is something that i think is really relevant to your work but there is a real fear about bringing the social life into the mm -hmm. business world people mm -hmm. especially now people are afraid of having the wrong social view or the wrong social uh, stance yeah. or or being socially awkward Mm -hmm. and then getting mm -hmm. fired because they didn't socialize correctly. Yeah, I know. I, I, I guess I don't think that the answer is to be afraid of our social natures, but again, to learn to use them more skillfully and to direct that social impulse into productive thought and work. And that it's, it's, um, it's not how we're used to thinking. We're, we're used to, to thinking of, of workers being sort of in their individual bubbles and then maybe getting together for a meeting and then separating out again. And, um, and there, there are some benefits as I write in the book to what's known as intermittent collaboration, spending some time alone thinking, and then interacting with other people, because, you know, I don't want anyone to think that I'm advocating something like the open office, which is I actually, you know, as I write in the book, is actually a really terrible way to try to do complex um, cognitive work because 
um, human beings are so primed for distraction. I mean, that that's an evolutionary advantage to be attuned to your surroundings because it could there could be a reward or a threat out there and you have to be um, attuned to those things. But for that very reason, an open office is just a nightmare of, of distractions that mm-hmm. pull you out of, of the deep work that you want to you want to be doing and you want your employees to be doing. So um, what we need to do is actually use walls, you know, like we used to have when we had offices um, to, 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 to protect us from our own tendency to be drawn into, um, into the distractions that sort of fill the open office. This is going to be a personal question because <laughs> as you're saying that I love working in coffee shops mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I love the noise and the movement around me. And I've, thought about why this is and I've realized Mm -hmm. that it's because when I sit at home and I work I feel like I'm missing out on the world so I have like Mm -hmm. a sense of FOMO but Mm -hmm. when I'm when I'm in the in the public I kind of settle down because I feel okay well if anything's going to happen I'm kind of already out in there so you're in the middle of you're in the mix yeah yeah I've (laughs) I've had people ask me that because um you know I think most people agree with me that the office the open office is is pretty awful but then people will say but I really do like working in a coffee shop and that's noisy and there's certainly lots of distractions and my theory about that is that um in a coffee shop you you do have there's some anonymity you're not surrounded Mm. by your co-workers you're not surrounded by people who are going to grab you and say, Hey, can you help me with this? Or I have a question for you or something. There's there's a, you're in public, but you're also have this sort of bubble of anonymity and, and privacy around you. And for some people that mix of the stimulation that you're talking about, the sort of buzzy, you know, atmosphere in a coffee shop and that bit of anonymity and privacy is kind of the perfect um, balance for, um, for getting work done. But I think that just speaks again to the importance of context that you actually are going to have different thoughts and do different work at home versus in a coffee shop. I mean, we are that sensitive to, to where we are. Yeah. Which was hugely impactful for my consciousness during COVID, which makes maybe brings us to another fantastic topic. How do you think COVID has affected um, the way people think, considering that it's so drastically altered our social interaction, our environment, and really even our movement, uh, because we're not commuting, maybe we're just sitting at home. Like It feels like COVID is a direct uh, correlate mm. to your book in a lot of ways right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've come to think of of, of the pandemic as a kind of gigantic natural experiment where a lot of us had our, our mental extensions cut off or um, taken away from us very abruptly. So, um, you know, we have been for 18 months now or however long it's been, like a lot of us have felt like brains in front of screens, you know, we're not, we're not getting up and moving as we would if we were still going into the office, we don't have that commute anymore and we're not, um, we're not, you know, some some professors, for example, have told me that they are not able to go into their offices and they realize that that their books on their shelves around them were acting as a kind of mental scaffold and that and they feel disoriented because their externalized brain is not available to them anymore. And then of course a lot a lot of us have not interacted with people in person nearly as much as we as we did before and I think a lot of us are feeling it we're feeling um in a way that we would not have been aware of before how important those mental extensions are to intelligent thought yeah and as you were writing this were there any like any aha moments like obviously you set out to write this book 
with intention or, or knowledge of, of the fascinating topics that exist within this realm. But was there something that you came across during the writing process that like really surprised mm. you? Hmm. Yes. I mean, I think one of the biggest, one of the pieces of research that had the biggest impact on me and the way I do my work as a writer is this, um, this idea of cognitive offloading. And um, again, this idea that we have a notion that experts or people who are good at their jobs do, do everything in their heads. And actually that's, that's mistaken. Experts are actually turn out to be those people who are most skilled at using these external resources, you know, using their bodies, using physical spaces, using the minds of other people. That's what makes them experts is that they're really good at doing those things. So I have um, really tried to implement this idea of cognitive offloading, getting stuff out of your head and um, getting it out into physical space where you can manipulate um, ideas and, and information as if it's physical objects or navigate through it as if it's a 3D landscape. And I'm really aware now that um, when you're able to, to use your embodied resources that way, you actually can think much better than if you just keep it all inside mm -hmm. your head where it doesn't have an opportunity to be changed or enhanced by contact with the world. And where do you think this goes as someone who's basically acting as a social scientist very much in, in, this, in the capacity of writing this book? Where do you feel like we're going? Uh, is it a positive direction? Is it a negative direction? Are we being better about thinking um, mm. in, in these ways? Is our mm. environment really lacking? Is technology screwing mm. everything up? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. I tend to be an optimist, and I see. I, I see for one thing the pandemic, as I said, sort of alerting people to the fact that we do have bodies, we do exist, and we are embedded in physical spaces, and where we are makes a difference, and also we have all felt the impact of not being um, physically present with, with other people. So I am hoping, and I, I see this happening in particular in education, that we can embrace the fact that we are whole human beings, that, we, um, that we're not just sort of brains on legs, you know, and that, um, and that we're not computers either, that we, um, we, have to understand, we have to understand ourselves as, as evolved biological creatures who are actually more like animals than like machines, you know? And that's a real paradigm shift from the way we've, we've been taught to regard ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that reminder that we are animals, I think is a very important one. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. okay, I know we're coming up a little bit on time here, so I don't wanna, run over, but I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about anything that you're working on now or just direct people to where they can find the extended mind and, and your most recent work. Yes, yeah, sure. So um, I am very active on Twitter and I encourage anyone who's listening to reach out to me there. My handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. And I have a newsletter um, that I just launched this week actually is called Thinking Outside the Brain. And one thing I'm really excited about is that I'm starting what I'm calling a cognitive advice column um, because you know so uh, so often advice columns are about our emotions and our relationships and those things are so important but I find that many of our biggest struggles are really with ourselves and our minds and so I my idea is to bring um, the wisdom and the knowledge generated by cognitive science and um, and psychology to bear on these questions that that I think are just as important which is how do we 
how do we manage our mental lives, you know, not just our emotional lives. And um, so I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that with, with readers. Has that come out yet? Or is um, the first one is kind of, the first one is coming out tomorrow. Oh, wonderful. Good timing. Yeah. Then. So. yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a preview. It's about um, people who feel, and this is something I've heard from a lot of people, people who feel who fidget, who, who, who feel compelled to move a lot when, when they're working or thinking, but are, are, are embarrassed about that or. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're about to say, but that's definitely me. Who have been made to feel embarrassed or ashamed or like they should, they should, you know, just be still, you know? Um, And so I'm writing about how that's actually um, fidgeting is actually a way of modulating our level of arousal in a very granular and effective way. And um, it's something that we should be encouraging rather than shaming people for. So um, good. stay I tuned like for this. that. <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah. is, this is good news. I do the, uh, the, the facial hair thing all the time. That's my addiction. <laughs> well, wonderful. By the time this airs, uh, that should be out. So It'll we'll be link to there. it in the show notes. Yeah. Annie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining me in this conversation. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Likewise.